This audio program is a ministry of Clear Note Fellowship. For more information, go to clearnotefellowship.org. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for fellowship. And we pray that you will strengthen us through the fellowship we have with one another. Father, I pray for those couples here who are struggling in their marriage, for pastors who are not being supported by their elders, for those suffering under besetting sins and temptations. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit will be poured out on us, that we may be strengthened to serve you more faithfully, and that your church might be radiant, a radiant bride, sanctified by your Spirit. Now, as we come to your word, we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of every one of our hearts will be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably don't want to know about the psychology of uh, Tim Bailey, but I'm going to give you a little glimpse of it, which is that it's very hard for me uh, to speak at conferences. Because at conferences, you don't have a text of Scripture, you have a subject. And it seems ironic because when I speak on, on texts of Scripture, you often think, well, he's not speaking on a text of Scripture, he's speaking on a subject, you know. <laughs> and so uh, when conferences come up, I get facial tics. Yeah. Um, and I feel acutely the difficulty of this one because... Um, well, there are several reasons. Number one, David, my brother, kind of was sort of aggressive against the doctrine of the church, and there's good reason for this. The doctrine of the church, hi, sweetie, welcome back. The doctrine of the church has often been uh, hijacked by pastors and elders and deacons and priests to serve themselves. And so across history, you'll see that again and again and again, the apparatus of the church, the, the mass in the Middle Ages, sacraments today, church membership, baptism, um, and liturgy, and robes, and buildings, and the whole nine yards. Are you with me? The denomination. What are you? Well, I'm Presbyterian Church in America. What are you? Well, I'm Southern Baptist. Well, you're not Reformed. <laughs> you know, and, and so we, what happens is those of us who are the professionals, the pastors, steal salvation from the people. Another way of saying it is we steal the glory from God. Another way of saying it is we fleece the sheep, all right? And that's been the habit all through history. And that's the reason that the priests hated Jesus. They hated him. It says at the very end of his life, when Pilate is putting him to death, that he knew that they were calling for him to be crucified because of what? You remember what it says. Yeah, envy, jealousy, envy. 
And it seems like such a disgusting thing to die for. But of course, he wasn't dying for them. He was dying for his people. And so one of the most uh, intense passages of Scripture, and I don't have this for you, Jeremy. You just, I'm just going to read it to you, but I just read it recently. And it's found in Matthew 21. If you have a Bible, look at it with me. And it says there, Jesus, uh, often on, uh, on Palm Sunday, in the evening, we read through a number of chapters of Matthew. And the reason we do it is, how do you get from the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday to Good Friday? Now, of course, most people don't. Most people go from Palm Sunday to Easter. You know? But something happens in between. <laughs> what happens in between? Well, if you want to have your eyes opened and you've never done this, Next Palm Sunday, when you get home from church, open up your Bible and just start reading with the triumphal entry to the crucifixion. And it is this relentless theme of Jesus setting his face like flint against the vineyard, the vine growers, the vine dressers, who were sort of the tenant farmers for the church of his time, the ones that God had put into the seat of Moses and that they were commanded to obey, but were not giving God the glory of it. And so this is in that section, and listen to what Jesus says. He says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Now, who are they? Huh? Yeah, they're the prophets, right? Beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Remember Jesus? Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son. To them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And that's the story of the church. I have this book in my library that was published, what? Early 1700s, printed in the early 1700s by John Newton. And what does it say? It's an ecclesiastical history and then has a subtitle that's five pages long, you know, like they used to do. And the subtitle is with an account of how experimental religion has been opposed in all ages of the church across all history. And what's he mean by experimental religion? He means giving God the produce of the vineyard. Experimental religion is religion that comes from a regenerate heart. Experimental religion is a religion that's not based upon formalism. It's not something that the church is the mediator of. You know, you come in and it's a wonderful building and you just get the vibe that this must be spiritual and I'm kind of a spiritual person. And so, well, there's a kind of spiritual man because he's dressed queer, you know. I mean that in the best sense of the word. 
And look at the apparatus. It's so dignified. The building's dignified. The man's dignified. His clothing is at least other, <laughs> you know. I'm referring to the movement among Reformed pastors today to wear collars, but also robes. And, 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 and extraordinary robes. We're not talking about plain, ugly Geneva gowns. We're talking about something that makes me feel something I lack. Mm-hmm. And so you come into a church, the architecture is extraordinary, the apparatus all around you is extraordinary, the man looks extraordinary, he claims to be doing extraordinary things, you know? They said to him, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. This is Jesus saying this. All right. You remember that Monty Python scheme? Where is the ambiguity? There is none. <laughs> There's no ambiguity here, right? They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. What happens when you go into a cathedral? In, I'm, I'm working on a book on the church now. And my favorite section is describing the difference between going to the tab, to, to the tabernacle, you know, Spurgeon's Tabernacle Church in London, and then going for evensong in the evening to St. Paul's Cathedral. And it's absolutely hilarious. I, I wish I had the book to read it to you. <laughs> because in the morning, if you go to Elephant Castle, any of you ever, other than the, you've been there, you know, it's like a grunty, substation, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's not even pretty. And then you come out of it and the neighborhood isn't pretty. And then you go up to the tab and, and the tab isn't pretty. It's kind of brutal. You know what I'm saying? At least that's how I describe it. Any of you, would you agree with me? It's kind of brutal, you know, it's like brick, you know. Then you walk in, there's nothing impressive about the church. Nothing. Except you walk in the sanctuary and there's a buzz. It's not a buzz that is um, irreverent. It's a buzz that's vital. It's a buzz that's alive. You feel that this is an organism that's pulsating. It's reverent and it's fellowship and it's joy and it's zeal. You feel it when you walk in there. Well, then this dude gets up and leads worship. And I mean, they have the most awful music you could ever. It's, 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 it's an idiosyncratic principle of the tab that they're going to have ugly music. They, they believe in ugly music, you know. And so they have it, 
You know, if there's an easy way of singing a hymn that, that the whole world knows, they'll sing it a different way, you know. And then they've got this dude who's a pastor, you know, and he stands up. And I'm telling you, there isn't a place, you know, these guys that free climb up El Capitan, you know, there isn't even a tiny little fingernail ledge to get your fingernails in on this guy personally. All there is is the word of God. That's it. He doesn't tell you stories. He doesn't sing you hymns. He doesn't make allusions to the Rolling Stones. (laughs) He just preaches. I mean, it's like a principle that the music is ugly, that the preaching is ugly, And then, when he gets to the end of his sermon, here's what he does. He's going to give you the benediction. You know, you'd hope at some point there would be something personable. You know? And at the end, for the benediction, he's standing ramrod straight, and he goes like this, and gives the benediction. What's that about? You know, why is he... What's this about, you know? Okay, we don't like you. Don't worry. You can just look at us now, you know? It's... This is the weirdest thing. And I'm telling you, that worship service was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Why? Well, because God, God got the glory. There was no celebrity. There was no manipulation. Now, I think they make mistakes. I think music is intended to be beautiful and not ugly. You know, I don't know about you. (laughs) You know? I think music should move us. I, I, I think that actually reformed people get that wrong. You know, we should actually have music that moves us. Right? Like David was moving as he came into Jerusalem with the ark. All right? Now, I didn't tell you one other thing. What particularly made that church service beautiful to me and my family as we went there was that it was filled with what? It was filled with people, you know how to say it, right? You're in a liberal community, so we all say it this way, people of color. You know? There weren't many whites. There were Indians, there were Pakistani, there were tons of Asians, there were blacks. We went to dinner afterwards with, uh, with uh, an Indian man who was an elder and his family. I think that... Uh, Eleanor and Joe connected us with him. Wonderful afternoon. This is the tab. This is Spurgeon's church. You know, at the end of the 20th century. Now that evening we go to St. Paul's. And this is the highest expression, really, in London of the state church, Anglicanism. In other words, of Protestantism. And we go to Evensong, and we walk in, and I'm telling you, everything about that church told me that I was precisely as important as I've always thought I was. <laughs> you know, you walk in, and the architecture, and the location, and I mean, it's like, I knew I was a spiritual being. Come on, laugh. Thank you. So we walk in. We walk in, and then I'm even more spiritual. 
You know, I mean the clothing on, on, on the people, the functionaries. It was mind And the organ. The organ was uh, loud. <laughs> Deep. Filling. Uplifting. And then we actually got into the service. And I have never seen a guy with that, those dudes on. I mean, he made, like, uh, Elton John look like a, a bag lady. <laughs> and the most, most impressive part of it, the thing that most made every Anglophile part of my body just quiver, was when he would pronounce the word God. It was not a one-syllable pronunciation. Our family talked about it. We thought it was maybe seven or eight syllables. And it was like, You know, it was like, I don't know how to do it. Huh? Start what? Well, I'm sorry. I can't do it any better than I did it. And so you see that everything in that service was, was intended to do two things. Number one, it was intended to flatter me that I had the, what, the, the good taste, the spirituality, the uh, respect for everything about that place shouted the kingdom of God. But no, no. <laughs> Nothing shouted the kingdom of God. What it shouted was the British Empire. And the reason I get such a kick out of this is that afterwards, you know, in the middle of the service, you couldn't hear anybody singing. The organ just completely, but we sang, but we looked around. Nobody else was singing. Nobody bothered singing, right? It was a show. It was a museum piece, right? The organ did perfectly. The preacher showed his erudition. And his breeding, that's what it really was, his breeding, right? Aristocratic, right? And then at the end, oh, and we passed the piece, but we used water to do it. So like we expressed to one another our, our, our unity in the, in the body of Christ, but we used water. I forget, uh, Mary Lee, do you remember how? She's probably not here, yeah. Well, I don't remember how it worked. Where's... Maybe Hannah remembers. I don't remember how it worked, but there was something about water. And it was intended to communicate the peace and unity of the church, right? So afterwards, um, it's, it's getting late in the evening, and Taylor's with us, and Taylor's probably a 12-year-old boy at the time. And so Taylor goes up to one of the functionaries that's dressed to kill, right? And he says to him, do you have a bathroom? And the man says, uh, no. And Taylor comes up to me and says, Daddy, I need to use the bathroom. I said, well, go ask him again. I said, I'm sure he doesn't realize you need to use the bathroom. So, ask, so Taylor comes, do you have a bathroom I could use, please? I need to go to the bathroom. No, no I'm sorry, we don't. So the man, this dude, sends him out of St. Paul's to some city, facility, somewhere. And while we're still in there, Taylor's out wandering the streets of London trying to find 
some facility that this dude inside that's dressed to kill has told him that the city provides for people that need Well, Taylor comes back in and he says, it's locked. <laughs> and so I say, well, let me go with you. So I go over to the dude. I say, my son really needs to go badly. Don't you have a bathroom he can use? No, no sir, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to let you use the bathroom. I say, wait a second. We're here in the name of Jesus Christ. This building belongs to Jesus Christ. You have a child who was just in worship with you. You, you. you had us exchange the peace and unity through water. My son needs to use the bathroom. And you're seriously telling me you won't let him use any of the probably 55,000 bathrooms in this facility. He said, sir, you may not use the bathroom. He may not use the bathroom. Now, there's a little boy, a little white boy. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, did you ever read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. And then this addition, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Do you know something? It wouldn't matter who you were if you went into the tab and asked to use the bathroom. You could use it as long as you wanted. You could go outside and get a bunch of kids from the neighborhood and go in and use the tab bathroom. If they were ready to walk up at night and you were still in there, they'd let you stay as long as you wanted. Now, you know I'm teaching you the truth. You know this. And you say, well, but, you know, don't. It's not fair. You know, you're, you know, you're, you're grandstanding about the Anglican church because you're a reformed. You don't like the Anglican. Well, the Anglicans are reformed. Well, you just don't like the Brits. No, actually, the Brits just don't like us. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> well, you don't have any patience for beauty. Well, <laughs> actually, my wife is, thank you. <laughs> and so are my daughters, eh, eh, eh? Any of you going to admit it? No, your wife is sitting next to you, so you can't. <laughs> Come on, people. All through history, my brother was precisely right in saying that all through history, the pastors, the priests, and the elders 
have refused to give God the glory and have claimed it for ourselves. That's the truth. Everybody going to cop to that? And yeah, you know, we use the mass. We talk about it, transubstantiation because that keeps the people on the hook a little bit better, you know. Oh, it's actually the body and blood. I remember a Presbyterian minister, professor at a Reformed seminary, explaining to me he converted to Catholicism because he started going to Mass every day while he was a professor at a Reformed seminary. And in the middle of it, he said, one day I was sitting there in Mass, and all of a sudden, when the bell went, I knew it had turned into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. As I say, it's a good hook. And so we cultivate dependence on the sacraments. We point to the objectivity of the church and of her ministries. We wear certain clothing. We have grandiose, glorious architecture. And all of this is a principle, right? And we always claim that we're doing it for God, but somehow we get richer. You ever notice this? Somehow in all the talk about Reformed doctrine... These dudes get richer. They sell more books. They're more famous. Their churches grow. And they tell you how their churches are growing, you know. And, 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 and so the reform world has it just like the Roman Catholics. When Jesus went in and cleansed the temple, why did he do it? Well, he said you turned it into a den of thieves. He says, the Bible says that he looked around the day before and he he examined what was going on, and then it was getting late in the day, and he had hard work ahead of him. So he got a good night's sleep, and then he came back. And what did he do? He just blew the place to smithereens. He said, my father's house is to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And so look, David's right to warn us against the doctrine of the church, right? Right? Are you all with me? There's a reason why in the 20th century there was no doctrine of the church among evangelicals. There's a reason why at the end of our conference I'm given the job of preaching, speaking on the church, and I'm like, (laughs) okay, you know, it's awkward. It seems as if true religion all through history is as John Newton has said. True religion has always been opposed and persecuted by the church. I mean, if you read your Bible, can you help but think this? Right? You know what I'm talking about. You read through the Gospels. It's just relentless of the opposition of the church to Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, do you remember that mournful, plaintive moment when Jesus said what? He said, basically, are you going to kiss me off too? Are you going to leave me too? You remember what Peter said? Peter said, nope. 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 I have no place else to go. We have, who else, where, who else are we going to, you alone have the words of eternal life. Remember that? 
you alone. Remember Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Eh, you're a prophet. Who do you say I am? Peter again says what? He says, thou art what? The Christ what? The son of the most high God. And Jesus says, bingo. I'm going to make you the first pope. (laughs) Listen, that's the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. And then when it comes to Paul, the Apostle Paul, resisting Peter in Galatians, right? They say that it was a dramatic enactment that wasn't really reality, but it was just a way that Peter and Paul were trying to teach people. Because they can't have the Apostle Paul rebuking the first pope, you see? Because then what? Well, then you won't go to the Sistine Chapel and, 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 and be a Protestant just, just absolutely falling head over heels in love of all of the glorious art that the indulgence is bought. <laughs> I mean, you get my point? We just cannot stop ourselves for wanting our religion to not be humble and under the control of the Holy Spirit. Right? We never, ever want to rely upon God and his power and his spirit. We want our pastor to look good. We want him to be dressed in his spiffy dress whites. We want apparatus around him that's dignified. We want architecture that's glorious. We want sacraments that are efficacious. And if I could, I'd prefer exoperioperata. You know, that they just do it like rabbit's foots. And so, the tendency of the 20th century evangelicals was what? The tendency was for evangelicals to throw out the church. And so we have no doctrine of the church among evangelicals in the 20th century. None. You all realize this. All those guys that started parachurch ministries just looked at the church and they said, "I, I don't have time for this. They looked at the fundamentalist controversy and they said, so if you care about the church, you're just going to fight with each other all the time, so forget the church. You know, I can, do, I can be so much more efficient if I just have a crusade committee and I can have Roman Catholic priests and Anglicans and evangelicals like Martin Lloyd-Jones on the platform by virtue of me being puffed in Los Angeles and I can just command such a horde of people and the front pages of, of the London Times and and the Los Angeles time, I can be so effective without a board of elders that I'm accountable to that are going to ask nasty questions like Lawrence Howell. <laughs> You'll cop to that, right, Lawrence? Yeah. You know, I mean, who needs it? Let's get my wife, my son, and let's get a couple lawyers, if they're wealthy, and a couple CEOs or chairman of the boards for money, And let's have a board. And forget the church. Forget it. Who wants the sacraments? They're so messy. 
And, and who wants discipline? I was talking to a famous evangelical pastor, and he said to me, I was exhorting him to discipline somebody in his church who really needed to be disciplined. And he said to me, you know, Tim, years ago I, I disciplined somebody, and they just left the church, so, so I don't do that anymore. Now, if I were to tell you who this man is, <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. Many of you know him. And I'm sure if he were going to say that publicly, he would change the way he said it enough so that it wouldn't be so scandalous. And I kind of feel proud that he, that he, he felt like I was worthy of such honesty. And so what we do is we think that the improper use of a thing invalidates its proper use. Are you with me? So the fact that the church has been used so terribly all across the history of the church, as John Newton says in that book, all right, the fact that the church hounded Jesus to death, the fact that the church persecuted the reformers, the fact that the church hounded Spurgeon and hounded Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, J.I. Packer and John Stott, it's like, you know, they just, they just excoriated him, you know? It was so stupid. And now look who's laughing. Any of you want to be in the Anglican church today? The Episcopal church? Martin Lloyd-Jones was absolutely right, but nobody remembers if you're right. They just remember that you were a contrarian. It doesn't matter if you're right. What we have to have is some semblance of dignity in our numbers and our expansive uh, organizations and everything. And so, evangelicals learned their lesson at the beginning of the 20th century, and they said to heck with the church, and they planted parachurch organizations, they planted missions, and they weren't bothered with little things like church discipline and the sacraments. They weren't bothered with loving individuals, okay? They weren't bothered with listening to the same complaint of the same old woman for the 13th year in a row, and they didn't even feel a need to answer her phone calls. If she wanted to send them money, that was fine. Right? And now what's happened is the church has become the parachurch. <laughs> the church looked at parachurches and it said, they don't have to do pastoral care. Why do I have to do pastoral care? This is insane. You know what a waste of time that old woman is? One of the most precious old women of this congregation was a woman that once wanted to give some money to a designated fund that was for the support of college ministry in a church we used to be at. And she was very poor. But she decided she was going to, I think it was like $2 a month. She was going to give $2 a month for the support of the campus ministry. And so she took her $2 and every month she put it in an envelope and sent it to this designated fund. Until one day, one of the, the, the officers of the church came to her and said, Rita, would you please stop giving your $2? It's more of a pain to count than it's worth. Meanwhile, Jesus watched what everybody put in the temple treasury, and he said she gave more. And everybody just is condescending about Jesus' statement. Well, yeah, proportionately. 
That's what Jesus says proportionally. I'm always convinced that in God's economy, what she gave actually accomplished more. Okay? Actually was more powerful and was more used by God than all the money of the rich people. I'll never forget my father-in-law showing me this uh, prospectus for a new fundraising campaign of a certain uh, parachurch organization that I won't mention the name of it, but I will tell you that they've always told everybody they're the largest Christian organization in the world, other than Roman Catholic Church, right? And in this, it, it had this rotunda where they were going to put along the walls the names and the amounts of those who gave more than $250,000. So this was probably a $100 million campaign or something like that. And if you give this amount, this is where your name, your picture, your, you know, your honor will be. And then if you gave, I think it was like 100, if you gave 50, if you gave 20, and then when it came to 25, what they said was, this is, and they actually had this in the prospectus, and the prospectus was like St. Paul's Cathedral. It was like this big, this wide, it was like on 5,000 weight cardstock laid, the most glorious graphics you can imagine. It made any annual report of any corporation look pathetic by comparison. And it said, this campaign is not for the widow's might. They actually said that. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. The church can and often has been hijacked by its officers for their own, for our own well-being, our own profit, and our own glory. We must be on guard against that. And nevertheless, Jesus said to Peter, Thou art Peter, rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter had confessed that he was the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And if you look at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, the Holy Spirit, on the day of Pentecost, created the church. The Holy Spirit gives gifts for the building up, the edification of the church. If you look at regeneration, what does the New Testament show us? In Acts, it says that there were added to their number. And I can't stop telling evangelicals that that's an objective statement. It gives you the number, and it says they were added to their number. Somebody was counting bodies, right? And the sacraments are objective. They taste, they're wet, right? And so when we look at regeneration, when we look at the, at the atonement of Christ, Christ died for the church. We look at Peter upon... This confession of faith I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Right? The church matters. What 
Evangelical parachurch organizations gave us was a bunch of myths and vapors. They gave us people who talked much about their personal relationship with Jesus and, 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 and doing the works of Jesus and devotions and all those things are important, but it stopped there. It stopped there. But in Acts, it says they were added to their number. And then Acts goes on in the first couple of chapters and describes an unbelievably concrete, fleshly, physical, numerical life. They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. They went house to house. When the apostle Paul describes his work, what does he say? He says, I told you everything God told me to. I didn't pull back. I didn't pull my punches. I was in your house. I was there day and night. I was there with tears. I never stopped warning you. Unbelievably fleshly, personal. And so the New Testament, seeing what the church did to Christ did not pull back from the doctrine of the church. Now you say, well, it wasn't the church really. And I say, yes, it was. Israel was the church. The church is Zion. Listen to this. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. Have any of us ever had any question that that's referring to the church? Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake thy sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters, and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst to assuage? Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. Round each habitation hovering, see the cloud and fire appear. For a glory and a covering showing that the Lord is near, thus deriving from our banner light by night and shade by day, safe they feed upon the manna. Which he gives them when they pray. Blessed inhabitants of Zion, washed in the Redeemer's blood, Jesus, whom their souls rely on, makes them kings and priests to God. Tis his love his people raises over self to reign as kings, and as priests his solemn praises each for a thank offering brings. And then, the last verse. You all know it, right? Savior, if of Zion's city. I, through grace, a member am. Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. I'll never forget David coming down and preaching. And I don't remember what the occasion was, um, but he, he came down and preached one Sunday evening back at Winslow Road. And the subject of his sermon was, this one was born in Zion. And it was a sermon on the glory of the church. 
I tell you people, personal testimony, I just tell you it's impossible to overemphasize my gratitude and my love for the church of Jesus Christ. It's just impossible. Um, from the time that my wife and I got married, all the churches that we've been in, the way that we have been loved, the ways that we've been disciplined, the ways we've grown through the church. I'm gaga about the church. Honestly, I am. I remember when Joseph was at Vandy studying. He calls me one night and he says to me, Hey, Dad, how do you know whether or not you're called to pastoral ministry? And I say, Well, I don't know, but you better be. <laughs> you know? This is not something you do unless you're called. And as we talk, I can just feel that he's fearful of my answer. And I'm thinking, why is Joseph fearful of my answer? And so finally I said to him, well, if you were called to the ministry, I mean, you know, we tried to answer the question. I tried to answer the question. But I said, if you were called to the pastoral ministry, it seems like that would not make you happy. Am I right? And he said, yeah. I said, why? And he said, well, I don't want to be a pastor. And I said, what do you think I said? What do you think I said? Come on, what do you think I said? No. No, you got that one wrong. He never gets anything wrong, but he got that one wrong. No, I said, why not? How could you not want to be a pastor? Now, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but that's still how I feel. And that doesn't mean computer programmers and electricians and dentists and and uh, rebuilders of old cell phones, and farmers, and even optometrists, <laughs> and accountants. I mean, that's just like, ah, yikes. <laughs> There's a reason you're doing my taxes, and I'm not. I just can't conceive of what my life would have been like without the church of Jesus Christ. I can't conceive of it. How would I have survived spiritually? What kind of a... Um, what kind of a man would I have been? What kind of a father would I have been? What kind of a husband would I have been? What kind of children would I have had if I hadn't had you to discipline them and raise them? Come on, people, you know I'm not patronizing you. Savior, if of Zion City, I through grace. Don't you love it? How Newton writes that? Don't you love it? Savior, what? Huh? If of Zion City. I, through grace, a member am. 
Let the world deride or pity. I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children now. You know, there are many counterfeits of the church. There are many ways to counterfeit the church. One of the ways to counterfeit the church was tried most intensely in the 20th century. It was called the ecumenical movement. And what the ecumenical movement tried to say was that when Jesus prayed that they may be one as thou and I are one to his Father, speaking of the church, they said, well, the way to make the church one is to make the church the same as the world. So like all paths lead to God, all spiritualities are equally legitimate, there are many roads to heaven, and if we just say that it all works, then the world can be as one. And that was the ecumenical movement. And that's always the way the liberals do it. The liberals just throw out any principles, any distinctions, and and just announce by fiat, the world is one and the world's one. Right? Because liberals told us it was, right? Does that make sense to you? The problem is, what Jesus actually said is this. He did pray in, uh, why don't you put it up, John 17. He said, the glory which you've given me, this is his great high priestly prayer, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, speaking of the church, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. And then keep going, please. Go ahead. Do you have, can you take me to six? All right, forget it. And let me read it to you. John 17, 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me. And then what does it say? Do you know? Out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. And then in verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of what? the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And then 14, I have given them your word, and the world, what? Has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then in John 15, 19, Jesus says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world what? Because of this, the world hates you. And so the unity of the church is defined by the hatred of the world. And I really wonder if we believe that. You know, David was talking about how much we try to be independent of the power of the Holy Spirit and not to have to rely on it. That was one of the main themes, right? 
But the problem is, if we make ourselves independent of the Holy Spirit, we, we stop identifying with Jesus who was hated by the world, and we stop being hated by the world. Do you understand this? And where is the unity of the church when the church is so successful that nobody hates it? What is a unity that comes at the cost of being accepted by the world? And can you think of anything that more clearly defines the last half of the 20th century of the evangelical church? This is like completely accepted by the world. Jimmy Carter, in the pages of Playboy, was an evangelical. And in the pages of Playboy, he explained that he was guilty of the sin of lust. Remember this? You know, he said, you know, I look at women with lust in my eye, and I realize I've committed it. And, and Playboy actually was the publication that gave us this quote. <laughs> you know, evangelicalism was everywhere. Everybody was an evangelical. As a matter of fact, there's, there's a wonderful statement that I like to use about evangelicalism. And it's uh, by a guy named Soren Kierkegaard. And he says this, uh, if I'm going to be able to find this, I hope. <laughs> Hold on. I read this. Uh, have you ever noticed that as you get older, your digits are not as efficient? Especially when it comes to turning pages. I have a lot of pages to turn. Okay, so here's Kierkegaard. He says, God would be loved, therefore he wants Christians. To love God is to be a Christian. Are we all on board so far? Okay, he says, God would be loved, therefore he wants Christians. To love God is to be a Christian. He says, now, man's knavish interests. Well, knave is not a good dude. All right, it's a corrupt dude. He says, man's corrupt desire is to create millions and millions of Christians, the more the better, all men if possible, for thus, the whole difficulty of being a Christian vanishes. Being a Christian and being a man amounts to the same thing. And we find ourselves, he says, where paganism ended. Christendom, the church, has mocked God and continues to mock him. Just as if to a man who was a lover of nuts, instead of him bringing one nut with a kernel, we were to bring him tons and millions of empty nuts of shells. And then make a huge show of our zeal to give him what he wants. And I've never forgotten that. It's such a perfect description of evangelicalism. All the talk of a personal relationship with Jesus, of, of Jesus being in my heart, you know, of, of devotions, of, of the principles of Jesus, and none of the hard edges of admonition and rebuke and excommunication and censure, you know, none of it. And sacraments, what are sacraments? You know, the whole purpose of sacraments is to make a distinction between God's people and the world, between the church and the world. Yes, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again, but by doing so, we make hard distinctions based in physical apparatus, right? Are you with me? And can you see why this is inefficient to a mystical vision of the Christian faith that has no time, no patience for the doctrine of the church? And so, 
You look at the Jesus film, and it is the ultimate robot evangelist. You don't even have to know the people. You just show up with a projector, you show the film, and people believe in Jesus Christ. And then you add them to the number. My brother David, 20-some years ago, 20 years ago, did a calculation from Campus Crusade's website of how many people had been converted through their Jesus film. And he calculated, I think it was something like three times, I don't remember what it was, but it was a number that was beyond the realm of possibility. No, I'm absolutely serious about this. It was impossible that the number of people that they said had become Christians through this film had become Christians through the film. And so, what, remember what I said earlier about how now what we have is we have the church becoming the parachurch. The parachurch had absolute success in the last half of the 20th century, and so now in the 21st century, every church is becoming a parachurch. Okay, how do we do that? Well, we do it, number one, by having video venues. You know, preaching and pastoral care, house to house, day and night, with tears never failing to say to you what God called him to say. That's, if, if Paul were your pastor, that's how he'd describe his ministry among you. Do you understand? That's Acts 20. But today, we have some celebrity pastors who are such great communicators and so deeply in touch with God that we don't have time to mess with flesh and blood in the pulpit. Instead, we give you an an image, all right, are you ready? An, An icon, right, are you ready? An idol. And there he is, and I feel so spiritual having him there. (laughs) You know? And unfortunately, there are very good men that have made this terrible mistake. And then we look at the church and we see, not only do we have an image now preaching to us, but we also have no pastoral care. Because the churches are too large to have any pastor know us personally. And it's such an efficient money-making machine. I mean, the livings just go on and gone. Kierkegaard said something else. He said, you know, I'd like to do a little experiment. I'd like to have everything in the church go on just as it is right now, except we'd make a rule that from now on, no people could be there. And he says, I'd like to know, would any of the preachers quit? (laughs) You know, I'm telling you, I wouldn't quit. I would love to get up and preach to an empty sanctuary. You know, it would be so much more efficient. (laughs) Just as long as you keep giving me my money. That's not true. It's not true at all. Joseph said to me, I don't want to be a pastor, and it hurts hurt me. I thought, why don't... And he said, because it's hard. The words of every man between the age of 15 and 25 about anything. (laughs) It's hard. Yeah, you think this is hard. Wait until you get married and have children. (laughs) And wait until you reach middle age. And wait until you get to be 61 years old. Try to turn pages with your stupid fingers. Try to remember words in your on blood pressure medication. 
It took me 15 minutes last night to come up with the word concupiscence. (laughs) It did. I sat there for 15 minutes trying to remember the word. And now I remember my dad saying to me, blood pressure medication ruins your memory. Joseph didn't want to be a pastor because it was hard. Do you remember saying that to me, Joseph? And now you look back and you think, I don't know, because I haven't asked you this, but I just can't imagine that Joseph is not just as gaga over the church as I am. As every one of our pastors is. Why? Zion, city of our God. Formed thee for his own abode. It used to be I'd get up to preach and I'd feel like I had to escape the the impotence of the worship. And now I get up to preach and I feel like I'm the impotent one because we have musicians who are throwing their lives into the worship of God's people. And I look out at the people and the people are throwing their worship at the musicians. I can't imagine anything I love more than the church of Jesus Christ. You say, oh, surely Mary Lee. I tell you, no, no. Because Mary Lee isn't going to save me. But the church has saved me. You say, oh, there you are. You're back at the Middle Ages. You're, you're looking to the church instead of the Holy Spirit. And I say, who do you think uses the Holy Spirit to save us? Or who do you think uses the church to save us? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not humiliated by dwelling among the people of God. The Holy Spirit isn't humiliated by using the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to heal us. The Holy Spirit isn't humiliated by using the words of a sinful inferior to you to preach God's word. The Holy Spirit isn't humiliated by anything about the church of Jesus Christ. Yes, she's dirty and she needs to be cleaned. Yes, she's stupid and she needs to be taught. Yes, she's rebellious and she needs to be disciplined. Yes, she's timid and she needs to be bucked up. Yes, she's proud, she's presumptuous and she needs to be humbled. Yes, she's unbelieving and she needs to be tolerated. But what did you think Jesus was saying when he said that he's, that he's, that he's purifying his bride? I love the church. I'm absolutely gaga about the church. I have nothing else. Remember in Psalm 73? Remember Psalm 73? He's looking out at the at the unbelievable success of the worldling. 
is proud. And every time I read Psalm 73, do you know who I always think of? Don't worry, I won't come right up to you. But who do I always think of with Psalm 73? Everybody knows. Say it. Yep, Donald Trump. Donald Trump is my Psalm 73. The only thing is I'm not envious of him. So it doesn't quite work. You know, their eyes are fat, you know. They never get sick. Their cars always start. Their children are all perfect. Their wives are beautiful, and when they aren't, they get a new one. You know? Everywhere they go. And the psalmist is so bitter over this. He's so angry. And he says, in vain have I kept my heart pure. It's been for nothing. I was a fool. I should have given myself to the pursuit of pride, of wealth, and of influence. And then he says, you know, I look back. And remember how he starts? He starts letting you know that he knows that he's about to go off the track, right? He says, surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, you know, I was, uh, I thought this, I thought this, I thought, and then I was like, and, and, and I thought this, and, you know, I was a stupid jackass. You know, I was a brute beast, he says, you remember that? And he says, you know, if I had spoken this way, He says, I I could have harmed the people of God. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, okay? And, And he gets to the very bottom of his depression, of his bitterness, of his jealousy, of his envy of the wicked. And then he says, do you remember? He says, but then, what? But then I went and talked to my wife, and we had coffee together and devotions. But then I visited the Billy Graham Museum up in Wheaton. (laughs) <laughs> you know, but then I went to a Benny Hinn show. What he says is, but then I went into where? This, the house of God, the sanctuary. And he says, it all came back to me. I came to my senses. I stopped being a lunatic. He says, what? And it's so interesting. What is his comfort at that moment? He comes into the house of God, and he's reminded that God loves you and has a wonderful man for your plan. Right? A wonderful wife for your life. He's reminded that that if people have a personal relationship with Jesus, then Jesus will like them. He's reminded that those who come to him, he will never cast out, right? I'm making it more biblical now. You know, he's reminded that through this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. He's reminded that He looks to his baptism and remembers it all, you know? It's not what it says, people. What it says is that he's reminded what? What is he reminded of? 
Go ahead, read it out loud. Anybody read it out loud that has it? Now, did you all hear that? They said, then I perceived their end. What is he talking about? Is he talking about the end of everybody that's been to a Billy Graham crusade? That they'll be in heaven? Is it heaven? Is it grace? Is it grace that heals his envy of the worldling? No. Why do we have no faith for the fear of God? Why do we have no faith for hell? For the doctrine of the last things. Why? Then I perceive their end. Read it. Surely you set them in slippery places. Surely you, then I perceive their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. Now, are God's people set in slippery places? No. We're on the rock. So who are we talking about? We're talking about the wicked. Then I perceive their end. Surely you have set their feet on slippery places. Keep going. You cast them down to destruction. Keep going. How they are destroyed in a moment. How they are destroyed in a moment. This is what heals us when we come into the sanctuary of God is the judgment of God. The judgment of God is the balm of Gilead. It is the tonic. It is what heals the oozing envy that Satan uses to seduce us from God. And it's in the household of God that God's judgment is clear. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Now, do you think we'd already gotten the point already here? But he elaborates, go ahead, say it again. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Go ahead. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you will despise their form. And that's what heals him. That's what keeps us on the straight and narrow path. Is seeing that there's nothing in between heaven and hell. Nothing. And the church, the sanctuary of God, is where this comfort is given to us. Do we go to church wanting to hear the proclamation of the judgment of God on the wicked? No, we don't. We don't think that's what will heal us, right? As a matter of fact, that won't play on Facebook. I'm on a rant about Facebook, and I'm embarrassed about it, but I don't think there's a better thing to be on a rant against today. <laughs> you know? You put up these verses we've just had read to us on Facebook, and how many likes do you think you're going to get? So is Facebook good for us? Well, it's the only way to find out who's pregnant. <laughs> so I'm caught... I don't know what to do because my wife knows things I don't know and I'm, I'm a pastor. I say, how did you know that? It was a couple days ago. It was on Facebook. Well, sweetie, do you have a point? Okay. Now, what comes next in this? Go ahead. When my heart was embittered, 
I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. So he's saying, you know, I came this close, this close. I was like a stupid jackass, a senseless beast, right? Okay? I was this close, this close. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. Nevertheless, I belong to you. You've, you've taken my hand. Go ahead, if you can do it. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. So here he is, and he's, okay, I'll step away from the chasm. I'll stop envying them. I see what's going to happen to them, but here I am. I'm in your hands. And then, how many of you would, would nominate what now comes next in this chapter for one of your top five sections of Scripture? I would certainly. You don't know it? You don't know what comes next? How many of you know what comes next? Would you nominate it or not? Are the parts you like better like Jesus wept? Or, you know, uh, Abelaham was the father of Jehadaham, and, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Whom have I in heaven but you? And aside from you, I, decide, I desire nothing on earth. Go ahead. My flesh and my, my heart, heart may, may fail, fail, but God, God is the strength. Is the and my portion forever. Whom have I in heaven but you? Where was he healed? Where? The sanctuary. The church. People, if we're going to recover the power of the Holy Spirit, and if we're going to be kept protected until death, and if our children are going to be regenerated, born again by the Spirit of God, we must recover the doctrine of the church. We must recover the discipline of the elders. We as a church, and I, I make no apology telling you this, my testimony of the last few years in the history of our church is that it is precisely the discipline of the elders, of the pastor's children, which has given us the most glorious gifts spiritually in the last couple of years. And you say, well, what are you doing in the ministry? You should be out of the ministry if your children have been disciplined. And I say, really? Really? You say, oh yeah, that's very clear. The, the, uh, the Federal Vision people have told us that. And I say, oh really, have they shown us that? When their children failed, did they leave the ministry? And the answer is no. Now, some of them would say they would. And I say, really? Sometimes I wonder whether every single day when a preacher or an elder or a deacon gets up, he should look at his home to decide if it's in order and if he should take that day off from ministry. You know what I'm saying? You know, he loves me, he loves me not. My home's in order, my home's not. My home's in order. Honey, would you stop talking or I'm going to have to demit the ministry? <laughs> you know? 
here's an idea. The, the tool of church discipline has been given us by God for the protection of God's people. And so it seems like one of the tools that is used to keep a home in order and to keep children believing is that they are barred from the Lord's table so that their souls are protected. Are you with me? And what we can tell you is, guess what? If the elders tell the pastor to shut his mouth and to leave the room because they need to discipline his son, are you with me? And that son comes and faces the plurality of eldership, not the board of the parachurch organization, not a virtual preacher, but the board of elders, and the board of elders excommunicate him. The board of elders bar him from the Lord's table and tell him to repent. And the pastor keeps his mouth shut. Are you with me? You understand why the pastor has to keep his mouth shut, right? Because he doesn't think the elders ever get it right with his children. That's why his children need to be disciplined. God uses this to bring repentance in the life of his children. And there is covenant succession. If I were to single out the thing in the last few years that has given me the most joy, it would be the discipline of the elders board of our church. You know? When, when the elders get up to serve communion, and no, we don't have women to do it so that we look like a kinder, gentler nation. No, we have the elders do it because the elders are the fathers of the church and we want the fathers to serve. When the elders come up front and the elders serve communion, you know what? There are two women in this church who are married to two of the pastors who are older. My wife is one of them, Annie Carell is the other, who at times cry. Now, why do they cry when the elders come up front? Do you know why? They cry because they look at the men and they say, I'm safe. My children are safe. We're protected. And they cry. Everybody else has been very good about getting done on time. I want to read to you, as we come to an end, I want to read to you two things. Um, one is Calvin, and the other is Machen. And I'll let you choose which I reach first. All those that want Machen first, raise your hand. All those that want Calvin first, raise your hand. Machen wins. I'll read you Machen first. Machen says this. He says, is there no refuge from strife? Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name 
to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. And then Calvin, he says this. He says, shut up as we are, imprisoned as we are, shut up as we are, in the prison house of our flesh, we have not yet attained angelic rank. That's what your wife says to you all the time, right? (laughs) Sweetheart, you have not yet attained angelic rank. And we have to admit that there's a bit of truth in that statement. Okay. Shut up as we are in the prison house of our flesh. We have not yet attained angelic rank. God, therefore, in his wonderful providence, accommodating himself to our capacity, has prescribed a way for us, though still far off, to draw near to him. And that way is the church, into whose bosom God is pleased to gather his sons. Not only that they may be nourished by her help and ministry as long as they are infants and children, but also that they may be guided by her motherly care until they mature and at last reach the goal of faith. For what God has joined together, it is not lawful to put asunder so that for those to whom he is the father, the church may also be the mother, the mother. We don't patronize women in this church. The church is our mother. And so we guard her. And in our guarding, we're not effeminate. We're real masculine like every woman wants in front of her and her children. We discipline. We rule the sacraments. We don't use the church for our own glory and for our own well-being, for our own riches. We love her as we love our wives, as we love our mothers, but she is the mother of our souls. And we do everything we can to assure her peace and unity. But we know we fail, but our failure almost never is a failure of love. It's a failure of nerve. (laughs) It's a failure of stupidity. It's not a failure of love. It's not. Do you love the church? Do you love the church? Not do you love this church, do you love the church? I trust so. Let's pray. Father, shut up in this prison house of flesh. 
We recognize our weakness, our vanity, our desire to be flattered. We recognize our jealousy of the wicked. We recognize our conniving, our timidity. We recognize our weakness, Father. Would you please feed us? Would you use our mother to keep us safe until that day when you call us into your presence? And may we that day hear the words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now enter into my rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a production of Clear Note Press. Please feel free to share this recording with others, but do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more resources like this, go to clearnotefellowship.org.